coming up on episode six, a discovery of the week double feature. Plus, Liam Daw from Gaming on Linux is back to tell you about one of his favorite new games. And then the community sounds off about paid Linux distributions. And we'll also take a dive into Linux laptops and whether or not you really need a Linux laptop. Let's do this. Привет, говорит Александр. Мы слушаем Linux for Everyone из России. Welcome home. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Linux for Everyone. This is a podcast about desktop Linux, open source software, and the community creating it and enjoying it. So you've probably noticed those country tags that I've started putting at the beginning of the show, and I really, really love that. It just drives home how global this community is. If you would like to record one of your own, just do it. The format is pretty simple. It's Hi, your name. We're listening to Linux for Everyone in whatever country you're in. And then welcome home. And you're welcome to say that in English or in your native language. So just record that and send it to me in any audio format. The email address is linuxforeveryone at pm.me. That is linuxforeveryone at pm.me. And of course, a big, big thank you to Alexander for checking in from Russia. As always, it's time to get into our discovery of the week. And as promised, this time it's a double dose. These two apps have sort of a common thread to them. And it kind of ties into the theme of last week's episode where I talked about DistroTest. It's so easy to make an assumption that, well, everyone must know about this because it's great. Or everyone must know about this because it's built in to Ubuntu right? I think what happens is that perhaps when we first get into the Linux world, we're introduced to something, and we like it, and we simply stick to it. And that was the case for me with VirtualBox. Anytime I wanted to give a Linux distro a test drive, I used VirtualBox, because it's the first one that I used, and I just, I learned it, and I got used to it. And what VirtualBox has going for it is the array of options and tweaks that you can give to your virtual machine and what you can do with those virtual machine files. They're very easy to, for example, transport to a different machine. But for whatever reason, I tried something different this time. I wanted to take some screenshots of Ubuntu for a guide that I was working on at Forbes, but I'm currently running Pop! OS. And I thought, huh, GNOME boxes. That's out there. That's something I've never tried. Let's give that a spin. So I installed it from the pop shop and I downloaded the Ubuntu 1804 and 1904 ISOs and pointed GNOME boxes at them. So a real basic installation window comes up and my avatar from my user account is already there because it's GNOME and GNOME has in turn pulled that from my Google login which I had set up uh, during my first installation of, of Pop! OS. 
And then there's an option for an express install. And I thought, huh, let's see what that does. So with the username already filled in, it simply asks for a password and that you have an internet connection. So I enter a password and I click continue and suddenly I am being treated to a unattended installation. It pulled the regional language settings from my host machine. It handled all the partitioning and everything else. And in less than about five minutes, I had a perfectly working Ubuntu 18.04 to play with. So not having used GNOME boxes on a regular basis, I wondered if this was just a feature that everyone kind of knew about, but I couldn't find a lot of documentation on it. So I just started downloading distributions. Debian? Yep. Express install worked. Uh, Red Hat? Yep. Fedora? Yep. OpenSUSE? Yep. And apparently GNOME boxes even has unattended installation scripts for Windows 7, 8, and 10. So in the end, this was a huge time-saving feature for me, and so I wrote a quick article at Forbes, published it, and it shot up to about 10,000 views, and once again, it started looking like a feature that not a lot of people were aware of. So I spoke to some of the developers behind GNOME Boxes, and their goal is to try to make all of the functionality that GNOME Boxes has bubble to the surface a little bit more for version, I believe, 3.34, which is coming up in the near future, because it also supports uh, VNC. It also supports remote desktop connection. And it is my hope that pretty soon we'll see some unattended installation scripts for other popular Linux distros like Pop! OS or Linux Mint. At any rate, this was a huge time-saving feature for me, and it was so much simpler to use than VirtualBox, albeit, you know, not as many options, not as much flexibility, but for, admittedly, for an average user like me, it is the perfect solution for test driving stuff. So if you haven't checked it out before, give it a try. It's GNOME Boxes. And if it's not in your distribution software center already, it is also available to download as a flat pack from Flathub. And as always, I'll have links to this at the show notes for this episode at linuxforeveryone.fireside.fm. Discovery of the week number two is actually built in to Ubuntu. And it's pretty easy to obtain if you're not using Ubuntu. So a quick little backstory on this. I'm sitting outside on the balcony with my wife last Friday, and we're talking about the show, and she's asking about all the bloopers and if I'm saving those and what I'm doing with all the uh, the songs from the source tracks, and if I'm saving the, you know, the source project files for each episode, and I said, yeah, of course, I'm saving all of that, and I've gone through the trouble of setting up SyncThing with two of my laptops and my main desktop to have all of my documents and project files synced. And she looks at me and says, but it's in the cloud too, right? And I was like, oops, no, it's not. So later that weekend, I finally made up my mind. I have to have some kind of cloud-based backup option in addition to my local backup options. And I just wanted something easy. I I love the idea of setting up, say, a NextCloud server or a DigitalOcean droplet but I just really wanted something easy. And I do have a fairly large Google Drive account. So I started looking for backup solutions and discovered that there's one built into Ubuntu. 
And you can get to it by simply hitting your super key and typing backups. And it's just exactly what I wanted. You can select your folders to save, select your folders to ignore, select a storage location, and that can be a network server, it can be um, attached external drives, it can be a local folder, of course, on your internal hard drive, or it can be NextCloud or Google Drive. And so I thought, well, I'm already logged into Google Drive. Let's just click that. So I selected my project folders and my pictures folders and a daily backup schedule. And boom, done. I just don't have to worry about it now. It's done. And it's easy. I love it. So those are the two discoveries of the week. And they're a bit on the obvious side, probably, for people who've been around the block. But I just never make that assumption anymore that someone has heard of a cool tool, even if it's built into the OS. So GNOME boxes and backups, uh, formerly called Deja Dupe on Ubuntu, have made my life this week a lot easier and, in the case of the backup situation, uh, have given me a little bit of peace of mind, too. This week for Community Voice, I asked a question that has a tendency to be a little bit controversial. On Twitter, I posted this poll. Would you still use Linux if you had to pay for it? For the sake of argument, let's call that amount $40 for a lifetime license for the distribution that you use. So a $40 lifetime license for Ubuntu, or a $40 lifetime license for Linux Mint, or OpenSUSE, or Elementary OS, or Pop! OS. What tends to always happen with polls like this, I, I don't care about the actual numbers, about the results. What I find so fascinating is the conversation that emerges from that, where you get so many different points of view from so many different types of people. Now, as far as the actual results, I had 892 votes, and 80% of you said yes, I would definitely pay that $40 lifetime license. 20% of you, of course, said no, you wouldn't. So let's sort of peer into the little cracks and nuances of this topic with some feedback directly from you. Honestly, if Linux went paid, there's there's absolutely no point in using it anymore. Um because both NetBSD and FreeBSD have Linux compatibility layers. Um their user lands are a little different from Linux, but so long as you're not needing to use Steam natively because it's stored through Wine, there will be little to no difference aside from minor quirks in how core utils might interact with how you would usually use them. Thank you for that honest feedback, Farlato. And yeah, you know, if suddenly we had to pay for a Linux distribution, I think it would be a death sentence for that distribution. And the impact it would have on the overall ecosystem wouldn't be great. Because a large part of the appeal is the fact that Linux is free as in freedom, but also free as in beer. We all pay for Windows, whether the transaction is buying a license for the $139 or, or whatever it costs now, or whether that transaction is a little bit more hidden in the background 
by the cost of the Windows license being built into the hardware you're buying. But either way, people know what they're getting. It's Windows. They're familiar with it. They understand it. And it's practically ubiquitous, at least on the desktop side of the world. Hi, my name is Nathan Wolf. I also go by Cubicle Nate as my handle on the interwebs. So you ask the question, would I still use Linux if I had to pay for it? Short answer, absolutely. My first four or five years on Linux before the time of broadband and before Linux was considered ready, I would buy the Mandrake Power Pack Edition. Not the cheap one, but the expensive 7-CD version every year to support the company. Sadly, well, they didn't make it uh, as a company, and, and my piddly annual contribution, well, wasn't enough. I started on Linux not because it was free as in lunch, but because it was free as an expression. When I learned I could make my desktop experience the way that suited me best, it was absolutely worth every penny of that boxed set. After I read your Twitter post, I realized that I hadn't recently made a monetary contribution directly to my primary distribution, OpenSUSE, and I was momentarily stricken with some guilt, so I bought a t-shirt you know, with my favorite green logo. I didn't start using Linux because of the free aspect. That was never the attraction. Certainly, it's a benefit I enjoy today, but I believe in social responsibility. These projects can't survive on good feelings alone. If you enjoy the fruits of their labor, I absolutely believe that you should thank them in whatever means you have available. Heading back over to Twitter, one of the responses to this poll came from Javier, and he says, I think the question is, at what price it becomes a commercial project and how that affects the product. If I'm buying it, I would expect a higher quality, but I would also expect shady practices for the sake of selling more. And his last line, I think, is what really matters in this conversation. Linux must be free to stay true to its ideology. And then, of course, when we talk about different worldviews and different geographical locations, Ahmed says, for third world countries, the answer will always be no, mainly because the value of local currency compared to U.S. dollars is so big. Now, of course, there are multi-million, multi-billion dollar companies who survive from their Linux offerings. And I'm talking, of course, about Canonical with Ubuntu and Red Hat Enterprise Linux, SUSE, etc. But on that note... Diago from Twitter makes a really interesting point. He says, I would like to see Ubuntu have a set of services for individual consumers, like paying for live updates, centralized management of installations and backups, maybe some consumer-grade tech support for certified products. And so that's one revenue stream that they could have, but the question is, do they need it? For other distributions like, let's say, Linux Mint or Elementary OS, these are not as big as something like Ubuntu, but they're still important. And there's still hundreds of thousands to millions of people that use these distributions. But when you talk about offering consumer level tech support and things like that, you open this giant can of worms. And that is something that takes a lot of commitment and a lot of resources, and initially, a lot of financial investment to support and to keep running. I honestly think $40 for a lifetime license is not a bad deal whatsoever. I mean, given the fact that if you look at what we pay for other stuff, you're looking at, you know, if you're talking proprietary software, 
video editors, you're paying for yearly incremental yearly upgrades. If you use subscription services, Office 365, where you're paying on a monthly basis, uh, you know, music availability, Spotify, Netflix, that stuff adds up. But honestly, for me, the way the community should be doing it now is if you would pay for the software, then why don't you donate to the software that you're using now? That, that's really where I fall in. I donate to all the projects that I use. OBS, I you know, do, donate what you would pay for software. Now, personally, I think that's the way to go. However, let me play the bad guy for just a minute. Let me play devil's advocate. A lot of people like to donate to support their favorite projects. But a donation is just that, right? It's a donation. Unless you're talking about supporting a creator on Patreon where there is a understanding, there is an exchange of money and benefit. If you become a $4 a month patron of this show, for example, you'll get the episodes a day early and you'll get them at 320k uh, MP3 quality. When you donate to an Ubuntu or an Audacity or an OBS, you're doing that out of the goodness of your heart, but there is no guarantee of a better product. There is no guarantee of a feature being added that you want. And so in a sense, I feel like if certain distributions did charge you, whether that was up front before you even downloaded it or preferably after you've used it for two, three, four weeks, and you know that you're actually going to embrace it and enjoy it and use it, perhaps that would hold the developers more accountable and perhaps that would push them and inspire them to improve the product because there is a paying customer base. But then on the flip side of that, you could easily say that, well, pick a distribution that doesn't have a hardware business backing it like System76 that doesn't have a major company backing it like Canonical. So something like an elementary OS or a Linux Mint. Those guys are constantly improving both their desktop environment and the underlying distribution itself. They're blogging, they're interacting with the community, they are squashing bugs, they are issuing feature updates, and that's not a paid service. It thrives on donations. Ultimately, I just wanted to throw this question out there and see what came out of it. And this is only really the tip of the iceberg. There are such a wide range of opinions and ideas and approaches, but I hope that this will at least get you thinking a little bit about the value of the distribution that you're using and how much work the developers are putting into it, even though the vast majority of us are using these products for free. Hey, if you have a great idea for a future community voice segment on Linux for Everyone, reach out to me on Twitter, Telegram, or Facebook. The tag for all three of those networks is Linux, the number four, everyone. And you can also join us on Discord, and that link is available on the show's website at linuxforeveryone.fireside.fm. 
Hello listeners, Liam here from Gaming on Linux to talk briefly about another awesome game that has recently released. It's called Streets of Rogue and it's probably one of the absolute craziest games I've played in a long time. It's a top-down 2D roguelite action game, something sort of like that anyway. You go through various floors of a randomly generated city as opposed to a dungeon. Each floor needs you to do a couple little quests to unlock the elevator to the next floor and as you progress through this city you start interacting or screwing with the inhabitants on each floor. The quests that you do and the plot of the game are relatively simple. You don't really play it for that. What you do play it for is how completely bonkers it becomes. And this is all because of the AI, because it reacts in some really crazy ways. The different character classes that you can play as as well are amazing. You can go around as a doctor, putting people to sleep, a ninja who can turn invisible, or perhaps you want to be a hacker. Now, being the hacker class is actually pretty amazing because there's so many things you can mess with. You could turn a harmless object like a TV into a bum or turn up the volume to distract an NPC or perhaps let all hell break loose and open all the doors of a jail. There's so many stupid things. There's various mutators that you can enable as well, like giving you random powers every few seconds, and that gets insane. In one game, I was knocking on someone's door, an NPC, and as soon as they answered, I turned into this giant, and it might be the most I've laughed in a game Ever. Streets of Rogue is a game about all the little things. Added together, it creates a very intoxicating mix that you will not want to put down. And it gets even better when you play it with friends as well. You can have it with up to four people, both locally and online. The developer behind Streets of Rogue actually made some comments about Linux support, noting that the Unity game engine made it really easy for them. However, they did mention that it has low sales on Linux, so if it wasn't as easy as it was thanks to Unity, they probably wouldn't have done it. Thankfully in this case though, the barrier of entry for the developer was low and that makes me happy as Streets of Rogue is now one of my favourite indie games on Linux. Ladies and gentlemen, the amazing Liam Daw from GamingOnLinux.com. That guy eats, breathes and sleeps Linux gaming and every time I show up to his website, like every couple days, there's probably about 10 new articles. So it doesn't matter what kind of game you're into, He's probably got it covered if it's on Linux. And by the way, Liam has offered to show up once a month for a segment just like that. So Liam, I'm very, very grateful to you for doing this. And it's really cool to have this uh, short but very sweet dose of Linux gaming on the show. You know what? Speaking of GamingOnLinux.com, I actually want to throw this piece of news out there because I just noticed it on his site uh, right before I sat down to record this episode. And it's about a new release of RetroArch. It is version 1.7.8. And for those of you who don't know, most of you probably do, RetroArch is an emulation and media player front end that just makes playing all those old console games a lot easier. And they have this new feature. There's a bunch of new features, actually. But I have to point this one out because it's really, really cool. And I'm going to read directly from the article. Another one of the big new features is the ability to get dialogue in various games translated into your native language, offering both text-to-speech and to actually replace the in-game text with your language. Now, Liam does note that there is some setup required, but uh, there's a video that I'm going to link to that shows this in action, and it's really, really awesome. All right, next up, I want to tackle a question 
that I receive all the time. That question is, hey, I want to buy a new laptop, and I want to run Linux on it. What should I buy? And for the sake of this discussion, that question is punctuated by a comment that we had in our Telegram group this week from Joe. And Joe says, why is System76 or Dell or Purism or insert Linux laptop manufacturer here your only options? I see this a lot. I understand wanting Dell or someone major to market and ship a Linux-based laptop, but aren't we at or close to a point with Linux where stuff just works? And then he goes on to say that he's got uh, an Acer Predator laptop right now running the latest Intel Core i7, 32 gigs of RAM, an NVIDIA GTX uh, 1060 graphics card, and he says it screams on Linux and Windows for that matter. Why do we feel locked into a, quote, made-for-Linux laptop? From my point of view, Joe, I, I think that when I hear people zeroing in on System76 or a Dell Developer Edition laptop or Purism with their Librem 13 and Librem 15, I really think that is not necessarily feeling locked in to those specific manufacturers but it might be two things. Number one, peace of mind that, that you know if you get a laptop from System76 or Dell or Purism, or for that matter, you know, in Europe, there's Slimbook, there's Introware, there's Star Labs, that you're going to have a level of support dedicated to the operating system that you are running, which is Linux. But I think the second thing is sort of a show of support. I think that people frequently speak with their wallets when they have an opportunity to do that. And the statement they're making by spending the money with these specific Linux-focused manufacturers is, hey, I appreciate what you're doing, and I'm going to spend my dollars with you. But to anyone who might feel locked into those options, you shouldn't feel that way, unless you want to. Um, I've installed Linux on almost a dozen laptops in the last year, and these are laptops that are sold with Windows, and they all work great. Sometimes you might see problems with the machine um, not sleeping or hibernating properly, but those are pretty easily remedied. And as far as getting outside that bubble of Linux-focused uh, laptop manufacturers, Canonical has a hardware compatibility list that they maintain. At least I'm assuming that they, they keep it fairly up-to-date. And that lists... Ubuntu-certified desktops and laptops. So Canonical works directly with those OEMs like HP, Lenovo, Acer to ensure that Ubuntu runs well out of the box on those systems. So, for example, if you go to this site, you'll find about, I don't know, 60 to 70 Lenovo laptops that are Ubuntu-certified. You'll find a few Acers, you'll find about 12 HPs, but that's not an all-inclusive list. Now, I don't want everybody out there to think that, you know, this is the last word on Linux laptops, what I'm saying here. I am no expert, but I have a lot of experience in the, sh in the year that I've been running Linux on so many different, uh, you know, pieces of hardware. And I can pretty confidently say that if you want to buy a new laptop, go out and buy a new laptop, and it's going to run your distribution of choice. Now, there might be some snags, for example, if you're running PureOS from Purism. Now, they sell a laptop that has a Bluetooth 
adapter that does not have a open source driver, meaning you have to take the steps to add a uh, repository to your system and then download and install that driver manually. But by and large, I mean, look, if you get a Intel chip made within the last 10 years, Intel's got a Linux driver for that. AMD's got drivers for not only their CPUs, but their APUs and their graphics cards. That's all included in the Linux kernel. Storage devices, pretty much no worries there unless it's something maybe a little bit exotic and lesser known. But we're talking about laptops. So, I mean, yeah, NVMe drives, you know, old school drives, uh, external CD-ROM drives or Blu-ray drives if you want to add those. All that stuff is going to be working right out of the box thanks to the Linux kernel and all of the developers at Red Hat and Canonical and the community at large who make that possible. Now, if I said to myself, okay, I want to go out and buy a screaming fast gaming laptop. I want an NVIDIA RTX 2070 in there and I want two NVMe drives in RAID 0 and I want a 4K screen. All that stuff is, it's going to work. There are some exceptions for example, the Surface Pro 3 from Microsoft, it uses a uh, Marvell wireless adapter, and that can cause issues, but not an issue that can't be overcome. But yeah, you know, getting back to Joe's comment, I think we are at that point with Linux where stuff just works. Now, there are some outliers, but I've mainly seen that in the desktop space. So when AMD launched the Zen 2 CPUs, you know, the latest Ryzen uh, 3900X, and when they launched the Radeon 5700 series graphics cards, the driver status wasn't quite caught up with the hardware release. So we had to wait a little bit for those particular pieces of hardware to work right out of the box with a modern Linux distribution. But yeah, I, I, I want to reassure you guys that if you are in the market for a new laptop, if you're unsure... Just Google the model number and something like Ubuntu or Arch and see if anybody's using it out there. See if uh, see if people on Reddit have stories about it. Check the Ubuntu hardware compatibility list. Jump on Twitter. Jump on our Telegram. The answers are out there, but by and large, you can pretty much go out and buy any laptop you want, and it's going to run Linux. Of course, if you want to be absolutely sure then yeah, you can support System76 or Dell or Purism or Slimbook or Interware or Star Labs with your dollars, and you're going to have a basically written guarantee that it's going to run Linux like a dream. Well, everybody, that's going to do it for Episode 6. Thank you so much for being here. I know I say this a lot, but I want to make sure you know that I appreciate it. I'm seeing the numbers grow. I'm seeing the community grow. And I love that I can sit here and do this podcast for you guys. So if you have any feedback at all, whether that's positive or critical, I'm open to both. Make sure you reach out on Telegram, Twitter, Facebook, Discord. You can find all the ways to get in touch with uh, both me and the Linux for Everyone community at linuxforeveryone.fireside.fm. But we're not quite done yet, because as you know, I owe you a song. So far in this Songs from the Source segment, I think I've played you some Penguin-inspired synthesized polka, 
uh, we've had a little bit of electronica. We've had some atmospheric, sort of post-apocalyptic video game music. I don't, I don't know how to actually describe that uh, that track by Red Ambassador last week, but it's one of my favorites. Now, how about some, I don't know, postmodern funk? The inclusion of this week's song happened kind of by accident. It comes courtesy of a gentleman named Wolfgang. Now, he actually emailed me because he read an article I had written on my blog about my own music production journey on Linux, and he just suggested a bunch of resources for me. And then at the end, he said, oh, by the way, you might want to also check out Wikiloops, which is a great place for collaborating with other musicians. And he really wasn't like trying to sell me his music at all. He was just being helpful. But I went and searched out his name on that site and came across this wonderful track that kind of has, I don't know, like a Jamiroquai vibe or something like that. But at any rate, it hooked me. I'm not normally into this music, just like I'm not normally into electronica. But you know what? Sometimes good music is just good music. So Wolfgang has been a musician since he was 19 years old. He's 62 now. And uh, one of his first gigs was at a recording studio at EMI Electrola in Cologne, Germany. But just last year, uh, February 2018, he signed up with Wikiloops.com to jam with musicians from all over the world. And they have collaboratively made six albums there so far. And he plays bass on these. And he uses Ardour 5 and Debian 10. This track is from an album that just got released today as I'm recording this. It's called In Time, and you can search for that on wikiloops.com. It is Wolfgang and a bunch of his friends. And as always, you can find a direct link to this album and to the artist over at the show notes for this episode. So let's listen to Burning at Night. I'll see you soon for episode 7. In the meantime, take care and take care of each other.
And I pointed Noim bo- <laughs> Noim Noim boxes.